everybody. Welcome to our show. I'm Liz. And I'm Taylor. This is a podcast for and about the town we love. And now we're talking Darien. Hello and welcome. Today is September 16th, 2022 and teenage mental health. Um, in our last episode, we spoke to some students who were kind enough, brave enough to share their stories with us. Tonight, we will bring Tara Levinson and Georgette Harrison, two local mental health professionals, in to review what we heard in the first episode and discuss the things they're seeing, hearing, um, and thinking about as they deal with these issues on a daily basis. Right. This is episode two of a three or four part series. The next one will be with some clergy in town talking about faith's role in mental health. Also, also, excuse me, also worth noting for this episode, if you're listening to this and you have signs of distress or know someone with signs of distress or have any sorts of concerns, please call 211 or 988. It is a 24-hour hotline for you, whatever you may need. So with that, we're going to bring in our two therapists. We hope you guys get something out of this once again. And um, yeah, enjoy. <laughs> All right, guys, here we are. Friday night, thanks for coming with us here. Thank you for joining us, I should say. Thank, Thank you, you for having, having us. <laughs> I like it to do it once. Okay, let me get you guys one time so we can, um, we know, so our audience knows who we're talking to. Great, um, so I am Tara Levinson. I'm a licensed psychologist here. I'm in private practice up in Westport and I specialize in children and adolescents. Um, I have been here in the Fairfield County area for almost 10 years. Prior to that, um, we lived overseas, and so I've kind of still maintained a bit of a global practice, which is actually kind of interesting because I have perspective wow. both locally and internationally. I still have quite a few clients that that um, see there. And um, in my day-to-day world, outside of being a parent of three kids and living in town, so seeing the day-to-day world here. Um, you live in Darien. I do live in Darien, and I have three kids. I have two that have graduated from Darien High School, and right now are off at college. Mm-hmm. And I have a 13-year-old daughter. So, um, you know, we've had that lens of being, you know, a really intimate part of the community. And then um, during the day, I do I, I wear kind of two hats in my private practice. I do neuropsych assessments during the school day, and then after school, um, I do therapy. And I see a wide range of um, clientele. Um, I work my postdoc works in cognitive behavior therapy, but I see kids with anxiety, depression, OCD. I do a lot of parenting work in anxiety treatments, behavioral treatments, work with kids with ADHD and autism spectrum disorders. So um, it kind of wow. runs the gamut. And um, there's so much keeps there to me do. busy. Yeah. There's there's a lot. And yeah. I love I it. So it's a great job for me. Yeah. There's so much to jump into. But before I, I okay. Let me introduce Georgette. So everyone knows we've got we got two panelists here. I would say not panelists, but uh, Georgette, tell us your, your experience. And you're a second timer, so. Yeah. yeah, well, thank you for having me back. Oh, we love it. Thank you for coming back. So I'm Georgette Harrison. I'm the Director of Clinical and Community Partnerships at the Child Guidance Center of Southern Connecticut. And I've been practicing, gosh, since 2007. Um, I am not a member of the community. I live in Stamford. Um, but I have been serving the Darien community for, for several years now, seeing a lot of um, children and families um, that are residents of Darien. My area of specialization is uh, attachment work. 
So working with uh, closely with parents and children, working on the parent-child relationship, um, and also trauma. Um, I have a postgraduate certificate in infant parent mental health, and also, um, you know, just a, a lot of experience on how um, trauma can impact the parent-child relationship and how, you know, these... I think my, really my my the area that I absolutely love is working closely with parents. I think we often um, are referred the children for treatment, but really who the ch- children really want to talk to is their parents. And so really helping parents try to, and, and the children think about what happened, like what are the ways in which, you know, th- there was a, a, a disconnect between them and how to bring them back together. So I work pretty closely with uh, parents and children, even though the children are technically the ones that are being referred. So does that, that falls under the umbrella of attachment? Mm-hmm. And so that's all age groups, not just little ones? Yes. Because that's a term I remember from like newborn stages and, you know, attachment being a thing when they get able to walk, but it's, it goes all the way up through. Yeah, adulthood. absolutely. I mean, we all have particular attachment styles and the, this informs how we create any kind of relationship, our friendships, our romantic relationships, hmm. even the way that we behave and work um, and the way that we parent ourselves. How interesting. Yeah, I love, the, I love that you said that and set up that because when Taylor and I decided to go on this um, this journey here of, of tackling mental health, um, in full disclosure, I I wasn't so excited about. I knew it's something we had to do, but I wasn't excited because it's um, I don't. It just it's, it's hard. Very it's hard. It's sensitive. I'm not comfortable with it. You know, I'm not in a. I just don't feel like I'm in a place to like. Not in a place. I don't feel like I'm someone that should be talking about it. But I think the bottom line is we're all experiencing this in some way. And and our goal then was you know these parents here we kind of we want answers we need help um and our children do too so um i don't know taylor take over for me i just i like i you know darian's been through a lot um in the last year and that was on top of two years of covid and it's already been a high intensity town you know you got a bunch of type a people from the city for the most part that move out here they're all successful all have great educations um um yeah. I yeah. I mean, I, I think absolutely. I mean, I, I'm sorry I didn't jump in because I think you're doing a great job. I mean, it's hard. <laughs> it, you know, we don't feel like we're the experts. That's why we bring you in. Yeah. Um, but we wanted to address some of these difficult topics because, you know, I know I'm not alone. There are other parents that are struggling to understand their kids and mm-hmm. get inside their head. And you, you know, you hear about these tragedies in town that we've had and like, God, could I be next? Could, our, could my family be next? And how do we get ahead of that? And if we can play any part in, you know, helping parents understand their kids um yeah can you so can you guys set up for us like your take on what darian's been through in the last year and then before then after we do that like i want to talk about like what um what you guys heard in this interview with the kids and maybe go into that but first maybe set the stage for us in your opinion on what you've seen what you're feeling mm-hmm. uh tara you want to go i'll go to you yeah. i'm i'm happy to take the stage on that one both you know, with my clinical hat as well as my hat as a mother living in this community. And we were talking a little bit about this before, you know, we we started the podcast, just about the fact that this community has been through a lot. I mean, for the last two years, we've all been had a shared experience of the global pandemic, right? We've been through a lot of loss. There've been a lot of changes, the amount of stress and, and the resources that we've all depleted during that time. That's something we've all shared. And in, in, from my lens, then we've had this other experience, you know, um, 
Darien as a community has been through in the last year something that no community should have to deal with. And we've had the loss of two adolescents, um, death by suicide. We've lost another adolescent from a medical health condition. And I don't think we can forget that there have been two other young men that have been very closely connected to this community that were lost through other tragedies this year. It is no way normal that a fam or a community loses five young, healthy men in a span of six months. Like, that is tragic. And that has to be, I was saying that that actually, like, those are two separate silos. Those are two silos that are sometimes enmeshed with each other because it just compounds everyone's feelings and emotions and sometimes those things are layered on top of each other and so to really understand it I think we have to kind of separate those things a little bit to look at them and then talk about what happens when those things happen at the same time um, you know with a nerdy hat on there's a lot of research out there um, around something called the ACEs which looks at traumatic events and resiliency and when you're faced with a lot of traumatic events at once it, it does impact you long-term. Like it does have a lot of effects on your development and it also affects your ability to use the coping skills you may have. And that may be facing our children and adolescents here, but it's also, we have to realize affecting us as the adults. When we get scared we and we're depleted and we're tired and we you know, are exhausted from all the changes that we've been through in our life in the last year, even normal events or slightly stressful events that normally we're like, yeah, we can roll with this. You know, I got a set of tools and I can handle these things and I know what to do with. When you compound all these things on top of each other, even the strongest of us can't access those tools anymore. And I think as a community, that's kind of what happened to us this spring is there were so many things that happened all at the same time. It's like the perfect storm. And nobody had any resources left. We were all in an empty tank. We were all depleted. <laughs> thank you for just putting voice to exactly what I'm feeling. Like, thank you. And I talked about that in our last episode with SE Cup. I mean, that that's exactly what I'm feeling. Like, all of a sudden, I just can't handle like the news headlines anymore, right? That normally you could just sort of blow off. But I mean, there's been so many bad ones. Thank you. Thank you. Right. And, and Georgette, that's, that's why I was appreciative when you mentioned the parents in the story, because I don't want to lose. I mean, that's part of the goal of what we're here. But that's, I'm glad that you're still remembering us because I think we're the ones at a loss of what to do because we're supposed to be the leaders. We're supposed to be the ones to, to, to solve these. Yeah. Right? No, absolutely. And except that no one... No one teaches you what to do in these situations, right? Um, when you think about what is your worst fear as a parent is to imagine that your child is in so much pain that they cannot see another way out than to die. To feel like um, this level of pain is so significant that they cannot tolerate it anymore. That is paralyzing as a parent. That is the, I mean, I, I cannot imagine a situation where, where a parent is able to, to think in that situation, right? Um, but I think that part of um, some of the stories that you had in your earlier podcast also highlights how important parents are mm -hmm. and how healing 
their presence and their support can be, and not because they tried necessarily a particular strategy or because they were able to say things in just the right way, but because they were there, because they were present, because they noticed that their child was suffering. And part of it is because in, in some of these stories, the, the young men and women actually opted to tell their parents, by the way, I'm really struggling. Sometimes as parents, we don't pick up on it because our kids are hiding it really well. But, you know, I think about um, the, the earlier um, story, the young man that said that um, he was really upset that his mom was essentially, I think, following him around because she didn't want him to be alone. And that on the one hand, he was really annoyed by it. And on the other hand, that was a little bit of a turning point, that sounds like, for him, because he felt like she cared. And that ultimately, I think that that becomes so important for children to see, that it, it doesn't matter if, we're, if they're annoyed with us and because we're following them around. And I'm not saying, as parents, we should be following our kids around, right? <laughs> yeah. But that for a child to know that a parent sees that they're struggling and that she is, is, is essentially saying, I'm not going to leave you alone with this, is what helped him feel like, ultimately, like, I matter and they care. And, and so it wasn't about a strategy, it was about being present. Isn't that interesting? It's like the dichotomy of adolescence. The whole goal yeah. of adolescence is to separate, separate. from your yeah. parents and create your own self, which means trying on a whole lot of hats that as a parent, some hats you may appreciate and some you don't appreciate at all, but they got to try them on to find out who their authentic self is. And then at the same time, when they're hurting the most, really what they want is mom and dad or, yeah. or whoever your caregiver is. They, mm -hmm. want, they want to be seen. They want to know that somebody can see what's happening to them. Mm -hmm. And so I'm sure, and you know, as a parent, it's really hard too, because you want to be present and be there and you want to ask those questions. And you often get rebuffed when you ask mm -hmm. the questions, but you still need to keep showing up because there's your, your child, your adolescence is struggling with that whole piece too. You know, I hear this a lot, by the way, but and you said it much more beautifully as <laughs> the, the dichotomy, dichotomy of the autonomous, I can't even say that word, authentic self. Yeah. Is that what you said? I said the dichotomy of adolescence. <laughs> oh, that yeah, whole okay, idea okay, okay, of like yeah. the goal is that you want to separate <laughs> yes. and you need to figure out who you are, you yeah, know, who your authentic self is. It's very well said. So, I, I, you know, a lot of parents and teenagers, I hear this, like they want to... Um, they, they sit around, they wait for their kids, right? And they want to be there for their kids, except their kids don't want them around and they're out and they come home, they walk in like, hey, and they go right to bed. And they think, I am just waiting around. I am not living my life because I'm just sitting here waiting. Are they doing something wrong? Are they not like living for themselves? I don't know like who wants to I take guess, that territory. I don't know. I mean, and, and jump in too, but I think that's, there's a lot of language and jargon and in, that's going on in, in media too, you know, helicopter parenting, over parenting, you know, raising an adult. It is, that's what we're supposed to do. We're supposed to give them space, but I think you can do two things at the same time. You can give your child space to grow into the person they're supposed to be and you can still let them know that you see them and you're there if they need anything and I think part of you know like what do we do and, and Georgette you can speak on this because you do a lot of the parenting work um, is just let them know you're there mm -hmm. right and they may push you away they may not appreciate that they may not want to talk 
to you, but to know that you're available, that you do care, that you'll show up. And maybe it's not even words like, you know, what is that love language that your child appreciates best? Maybe it is simply like a hug at night or coming in when they're in bed saying, hey, can I just come in? Not saying anything, just that, that they're valued, right? That you see them. Mm-hmm. Absolutely right. And I think that there's also this other component about, um, I, I can't remember which one of you w- was asking um, one of the, the young people, um, if, if your parent were to do this or if your mom could do this, like, would you be annoyed? Would you, like, how would that work out? And, and I remember um, one of them said, well, I think I'd be annoyed, but it might <laughs> not necessarily be a bad thing. Right. Yeah. right. I, again, I think that that is, everything about the adolescent is a dichotomy. It's a, a, a yes and, uh, you know, it's both, yes, you annoy me, and at the same time, that feels amazing that you just asked me that question. My Which mom is, used to say, go away closer. <laughs> <laughs> That's a great line, go away closer. Absolutely, absolutely. And as parents, think about how confusing that is. And at the same time, when your child does say, go away, how rejecting that can feel. And so I think parents end up self-protecting a little bit by saying, okay, well, you know, they're being an adolescent. I'm like the last person that they want to talk to, except that you are the person that they want to talk to, despite the fact that they're pushing you away. Mm-hmm. And so it's not, again, you know, I could hear as, as a parent, I could totally re- relate when one of you was asking, you know, what's like the right way to talk to you, right? I wish that I knew as a therapist, I, I hear that question so often, and I wish as a parent that I knew. But it's about the fact that you continue to ask. It doesn't matter. I mean, yes, there are ways that maybe you could ask that doesn't feel great, right? But if you're in general asking, it doesn't matter if, whether you get it right, whether you get it perfectly right, or whether they got annoyed with you. The object isn't to ask a question so that they don't get annoyed at you or in such a way that they don't get annoyed at you. It's the act of showing up. It's the yeah. act of showing up that you asked the question, that they will remember that you asked the question even if they kicked you out of their room, right? And, and, and that's, that is really what they're going to remember. Um, and maybe it's not even asking the question, it's just listening to what they have mm-hmm. to say or l- listening to what they don't want to say you know I always say you know sometimes when I'm talking to the parents of the adolescents they're like you know my kid doesn't say anything yeah I ask them how the day was and I get a fine uh, yeah. Uh. yeah you know what about just a when they girls. won't open up but sometimes I feel like it's really hard to sit across the table from somebody when they're staring at you and saying how was your day I almost find that that parents have the best time connecting with the kids when you're in the car and something happens and all of a sudden no one's looking at each other and the conversation just comes up it's an easy dialogue and and they can share things and you can just say wow really I'm curious about that do you want to tell me more about it so you don't you don't actually ask a probing question or say like well who did you sit with at lunch today right like uh, at least in my house that's a good shutdown of anything (laughs) but um you know I think that just kind of listening going wow that sounds cool or but to Taylor's point though like yeah yeah yeah, I mean, I, I think I'm more concerned about, because that does feel natural, yes, that that's sort of like the softball at the middle. I think it's more like when you've got a kid that you think you can't reach, yep. and you've asked them, what's wrong? Talk to me. I'm here for you. I love you. And you've done it incessantly, and they're like, nothing. No, I'm or fine. Or if you just talk to you. sat Get with out. them, right? If you just sat in the room and watched the movie with them night after night, and, and they, they still stare are. you down like, I can sit here all night. Yeah. 
and they won't open up. What do you do? Not all kids. It, for, for, for a lot of us as humans, it's not easy to open up. It's not. And if you're hurting, I mean, think about even talking to a friend. Like on your worst day, somebody calls up, you haven't talked to them in a couple of weeks, and they're like, hey, how are you? What's your first response to them? Great. Fine. How, how are the kids? Yeah. Oh, everyone's doing great. Meanwhile, <laughs> things may not be so lovely behind the scenes. Ignore but that it car takes burning some, behind me. Yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> Nothing it, to see here. Everybody move along. All good. It's all like from good. Naked Gun. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. And so it takes a little while to get to that space. So sometimes I think as a parent, and so, it, it almost might be the conversation of here's what I'm seeing. I'm seeing that it seems like you seem a little quiet. I've noticed you haven't been as active as you had been, or you haven't been seeing, you know, your friends, or you don't seem to be very hungry these days. I'm noticing it seems a little different. Like, if you want to talk about it, no, I'm here. And just, they may not take you up on it, but hearing that you you notice it, mm-hmm. hearing that hear you're you. available, I think is a really good way to try to open that dialogue mm-hmm. for those hard conversations. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Know. And I think the the other thing that um, came up during your interviews was this idea of not wanting to disappoint your parents. Yes. Wow. Yes. We, that yeah. really came up through everything. And mm-hmm. these are great parents, right? Like mm-hmm. you heard all these kids Phenomenal. saying, I couldn't yeah. do this without my parents. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Can you, yeah. Can you guys talk to Georgia since that's a great answer there? Like, what did you think about that? That was a common theme in all three interviews, seniors mm-hmm. to freshmen. Yeah. I think that, um, when you're struggling, you feel like you're the only one who's going through that, that you, no one is going to be able to understand it to some degree. I think a lot of kids end up feeling like they have no reason to be feeling this way. You know, they feel like, you know, they've got everything going for them. They're captain of this. They've got good grades. Their their family life is for all intents and purposes or, you know, they may even hear it from people like they're saying like, wow, look at them, like everything's so easy for them. And then you say to yourself, why do I feel this way? If Mm -hmm. everyone is telling me I've got it good. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So. Yeah, I feel like an even bigger failure because of that. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Or there's absolutely no reason for me to be feeling this way. And yet, there's a sense that, you know, here are my parents who have worked so hard to support me in some in some way. I don't want to worry them. I don't want to disappoint them. I don't want to scare them, I think is also this sort of underlying um, sense, right? Because again, this is a really scary situation for parents, because you would do anything for your kids, right? The 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 want to take that pain away, oh. and sometimes that's what keeps kids from talking, is because they they sense, or maybe in the past when they've tried to bring it up, parents get scared, right? And they don't want to hurt their parents, yeah. and and we don't want to worry our parents, um, or, or parents. I think in from very well-meaning places, right? Because yeah. we, again. We really want to support our kids. We try to help them. We point out all the ways in which their life is is great, and think of the positive. And we have a, a hard time. They said that's a stressor. That's right, because they're essentially being left alone with their feelings, right? Because I, it's it's like if I'm here talking to to my best friend and telling her about how badly I feel, and all I'm I'm hearing is sort of this 
but you have a great job and look at this and look at that. And, you know, don't be so like down in the dumps about it. Like, I feel like this is a person that I can't talk to anymore. I feel invalidated. But part of that is because as parents, you know, we, we want, we would want to take that pain away from our kids. And the emotional pain is one of those things that we just have to sit through with our kids, right? As opposed to take away for our kids. This isn't something that we can fix for them, except that, you know, we can not scared of how deep those feelings are and that they won't be left alone with them. When as parents, we try to cheer them up or we fear that, you know, we're just sort of what, um, like promoting it or that, you know, they're, we're allowing them to wallow in it, right? What that ends up happening or what ends up happening is that kids are left alone with those feelings. So it scares me um, from those interviews that I heard is it, it well, not what scares me, what was beautiful about those kids that they all felt comfortable enough to speak up. And in, 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 in all those circumstances, all those three, right? Okay, again, those are not depictive of an entire audience of children by any means. But in those three cases, they happen to have enough of a voice, the two of them in particular, to say, like, I am struggling. I mean, not in those words, but... But some, not right away. Right, okay, like, okay. Their journey, you know, each of them talked about a period of several years that it was building or there were peaks and valleys in terms of when they felt like they were suffering and when they were kind of like feeling a little bit better, right? Not feeling great, but yeah. feeling, but it took a long time before they felt they had the strength to be able to say this, this is not okay. I can't do this by myself. Mm-hmm. Oh, you think, okay. Cause I just, I, I, cause I made me wonder if, if you miss signs long, if I didn't ask this at the time, but I was thinking, is there any chance there had been things like little signs or they had, you know, a kid had tried to say something like one night, like maybe your kid came and sat with you one night and it was a little different. They, they normally didn't, but you just enjoyed the moment and you took it for what it was, but you didn't use an opportunity to push further and say, is everything okay? Like, I mean, is there... I would strongly say to all parents, give yourself a little grace. <laughs> We're not mind readers. We can't read all those things. Like, there are going to be signs that we miss on things. And in hindsight, with all situations, we can all look back and say, oh, wow, I could have seen that coming, right? Don't do that to yourself, right? Like, we, I think... I can speak, you know, I've been doing my job for 25 years and parenting for 20 years. Um, I think for the majority of people, we are doing the best we can at any given time. And we are using all the tools in our repertoire. And I know when I get referral calls from parents, they're like, we've tried this and we've tried this. Look, it's not that you're missing something you're not trying to do the right things sometimes it takes a while to unpack all of that so i think if parents are putting the burden on themselves that they should be able to see those things that's really high to meet and and i think that's hard so i would say to all parents is just to give yourself a little bit grace as you might to a friend who's talking to you about what their child's going through yeah thank you for that one of the the things that it makes me think about is that question comes from like a place of fear, right? What did I miss? Or what could I miss? And I think that that is because of, I mean, I think general parenting anxiety, right? But also everything that as a community we've gone through, right? That this didn't just happen to the, the kids, right? This also, this impacted parents. And they wondered about like, could this be happening at home? 
and I completely missed it. And and again, so I'll put, I'll put on my nerdy hat now. <laughs> From an attachment perspective, you don't want to be sort of so attuned to your kid, always sort of anxiously monitoring because for, like Tara said, that is an impossible uh, standard to maintain. And that unhealthy. is exhausting. It's not healthy. And yeah. unhealthy, right? It seems- it's, it's, it, it, it fosters anxiety in the relationship. And, and it also sort of gives this impression to kids that somehow, you know, um, how everyone's been talking about, it's okay not to be okay, mm-hmm. right? But if you're like sort of hovering over your kid because you're worried about every every little sign, Right you're actually sort of giving the opposite message. It's like, you have to be okay. You have to be okay. Are you not okay? Well, and I think it sometimes inadvertently reinforces a message that if you're anxious and I respond to that with anxious behavior, then I am telling you, I don't think you can handle this, Mm -hmm. right? And you don't have the skills and I'm struggling with those skills, so neither of us can manage it. This mm-hmm. must be a big problem when mm-hmm. actually it's a pretty normal experience. Mm-hmm. I mean, not in the most severe cases. I'm just talking about general kind of anxiety and, and kind of watching over and, and checking into things. And I think one of the most important, like, and, and you can speak more on it, but attachment messages is, I believe in you. I know you can handle this. I know this is really hard and you don't have to handle it alone, but I actually think you, you can do it. it. You mm-hmm. got it. That mm-hmm. message is so important. You got it, and you don't have to figure it out alone. Oh, I like that. Like that, right? se- that, se- that second part of that, too. You got it, but you don't have to do it alone. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Okay, just a quick word tonight about our sponsor. Hungwell Signs is a full-service sign company located right here in Darien. The company was founded and is owned and operated by a Darien resident. Uh, they've been designing, building, and installing business signs for 25 years. Yes, uh, we've actually used them here on a podcast. They've created a giant banner sign for us for one of our events. Uh, my husband is a businessman in town, and he has used them for his company sign. Uh, and also, adding to their uh, brevity of services, they actually also make t-shirts. So if you're next event or next party, think about using them. And Kevin, the owner, installs and work, um, he installs artwork and mirrors for interior designers, if that's something you're looking to do. So contact information. What are they? Yeah, look for their website, hungwellsigns.com, or they're on Instagram, or Kevin even gave us a cell phone to share with you. So if you want to contact Kevin, it's 293-644-3027. I'm laughing. Sorry, he did. He literally gave us a cell phone. That's great, Taylor. Yeah, I'm going to say that one more time. So everyone starts calling Kevin, 293-644-3027, Hungwell Signs here in Darien. All right, so back to our guest for, th- for tonight. You guys have twice mentioned coping skills. Yes. What, I mean, I mean what does that mean? Break that down, take it with the nerdy hat or not the nerdy hat? Like, it, are they natural? Say, are they built in? Are they taught? Do they come to learn from therapists? I think Do- it's a combination of both. I mean, I always think of coping skills as your toolbox. I mean, remember, I work with children and adolescents. It's your toolbox of things that you do when you are not feeling well. And inside your toolbox, you're going to have a variety of strategies. When I'm working with the youngest of guys, we might talk about like, Dora the Explorer, Bob the Builder. And you know what? You're going to have a variety of tools in your toolbox, right? You can't always use a hammer for everything, but it's nice to have the hammer in there. And it's nice to know what the hammer is good for, right? My husband would say, I've got the hammer down. (laughs) (laughs) But when you're talking about older kids, it's, it's, I think it's twofold that, that 
the set of coping skills is two sets of skills. It's it in and again with my background and, and my kind of orientation, it is the ability to be manage your body. So when you are responding to stress, to be able to have some tools that when you're under stress, whether it's anxiety, whether it's fear, whether it's anger, to be able to calm your body down. And then the second set of tools is is what I call the thinking strategies. And it's all those strategies you have to really kind of challenge and think about does this really make sense? Is this an accurate thought? Like, how else can can I handle this? Like, do I have tools for this? Okay, but I'm going to come back at you with this, though, and say, is there any tool, Georgette, jump in here and you go, we'll go back to you, but is there any tool a kid or even a parent could possibly have to handle the amount of stress and what came at us this last year? Like, is it... Do we have that? Is that toolbox exist or are they? Remember what happened to this community this spring is not normal. We can't normalize that. But that's what I'm saying. So like how, like if as a parent, we don't really have the tools to to, to, to comprehend and get to, how do we? I might have a conversation about that in terms of looking at it as taking on the whole mountain or taking on the first step of base camp, right? Like we don't have to tackle the whole thing today, but maybe there's one thing we can do. And, and let's see what it is that we can do today, right? It's because I think a lot of times when we get overwhelmed, our brains start moving forward, right? And we start thinking about the what ifs. We start thinking about the big picture. We start thinking about all the things that could happen next, right? And it kind of snowballs. I mean, it's human nature. We mm. all do this, right? It's, it's just how people behave. Whereas if you can kind of ground people, and I know mindfulness and all of that kind of gets like a little bit hokey rap, especially when you talk to adolescents about it. They're like, oh gosh, we don't have to do breathing. And it's not about that. It's about trying to bring you back into the moment and say, what can we do right now? We don't need to tackle the rest of that. You know, for those seniors that were talking about all the pressure for grades and colleges and future and all of that, well, that's still going to be out there. What can we do today? What can we do just for this week and focus on that? One of the things that I think about is, I think along the lines of you know managing your, your emotions, grounding your body, but it's the idea of regulation. And that I think we often think of, of adolescents as you know they, they need to be able to regulate themselves, right? They need to be able to manage their own feelings. They're still very much at, uh, in a stage, even in terms of their brain development, where they need what's called a regulation partner, right? Someone, and even as grownups, we need that, right? What's a regulation partner? Essentially someone that um, when you are in distress, someone that you can talk to or even be with, sometimes you don't need to talk. Sometimes for some people talking about it just makes them sort of feel more overwhelmed. And for children, that initially that's their parent, then it becomes their friends. And, and I'm thinking about um, the, the, the third young woman that was talking about, you know, when things were really bad at home, she had her friends. And at that point, she was still doing okay. And then when things sort of... Then she lost her friends. Then yeah. she lost her friends. And that's when things came crumbling down. Because you lose your regulation partners, because you can't, no one should have to do this on their own, right? And so I think that there's, I think teaching coping strategies is incredibly important because our kids will not always be with someone, but 
It can't be done in the absence of also having someone who you feel cares about what happens to you, someone who enjoys you, someone who is there to talk to you about your coping skills, whether it's a parent or, or, or a guidance counselor or a therapist or even a friend. So I've been thinking about this, you know, over the both of you speaking and I hate to bring this up because I always hate it when people ask this question, but I have to wonder with the advent of social media and phones and screen time in general, do you feel that our young people today are struggling to adopt the coping skills that they really need to succeed because of that dynamic in their lives? And if not, if they are like, are they able to establish those supportive relationships that they need to in a, like in a, in, an enduring way because of the nature of their social engagements. Like it's fleeting. It's, you know, it's, it's instant gratification. It moves so fast. It's like you're popular one day. You're not the next day. Do they, are they lacking something because of that? Or do you think they're being, they're just developing, developing them in a different way today because of technology? I think that's an excellent question. And there's a lot of different layers in that. I mean, it, it gives you a lot of thought in that process. I think it is different today. I think I'm not a big fan of social media. I'm a huge proponent of delay it as long as you can. Um, I think there's so many messages. And I think with the adolescent brain developing, access to that immediate back and forth with social media, technology, texting, they haven't even learned how to have a conversation in real time. Exactly. And now they're texting all these things and then these things blow up and there's no place to repair it. There's no human contact. You can't read the nonverbal cues. All these things that developmentally you would think exactly. would be appropriate for that. However, in in the the, the reality is, even if we want to delay, they are getting exposed to it right. and they use that as a means of communication. Um, I think that's the piece about com the conversation and the communication and, and making them aware of what they're seeing isn't always real. Um, getting them to see, I mean, you know, so one, two of the young ladies talked a lot about, or at least one of the young ladies in the um, podcast before us talked a lot about body image and what people see. And, right. um, I was really struck by the idea that I can't just even post my own thought. I have to check mm -hmm. with somebody yep. else to make sure how they think other people will receive my thought before I can say something, right? Um, and to me, that's a really scary statement. I think she was very brave to say that. I think she's 100% accurate in what she's saying. Yes. But as an adult looking back at, at the adolescent experience and thinking, wow, I can't. I, my my cohort has sent me a message that says, I can't even trust my own feelings. I have to get affirmation from everybody else before I'm allowed to share it. Not because what I feel or think isn't correct. It's that God knows what people will react to it, right? Mm -hmm. So I think there's a lot of pressure that way. Yeah, the stakes um, are higher for them. Yeah, yeah. And I think when I was hearing that, that same um, comment that she made, I was thinking about how precarious their sense of safety fields, yeah. right? Yeah. That at any moment, the wrong outfit, the wrong brand of outfit, apparently, um, a, a, a sort of ill-timed social media post will result in total social failure. 
Um, and, and I thought, and, and you know, th- there's been, I mean, even movies around like Mean Girls or, you know, if you're as old as I am and back in the 80s, Heathers and, you know, yeah. like that, all, and, and I think even one of the, the, the young women talked about sort of this idea of spending a lot of time trying to be at the top of her social sort of pack or group. And, and, and I think about, first of all, again, so how, how much anxiety is behind this idea of like, where, where do you stand socially yet at any moment you're going to get toppled over and lose all support? But the, I also think about the impact of shame. Um, and, and not just in Darien, right? Um, when you don't quite fit in, when you've got people saying like, ew, what are you doing wearing those neon green pants? Or, um, you know, what are you doing hanging out with those people? Or, um, or, or you know, we, we were also talking about mental health, right? Uh, um, they were talking uh, about how some kids sometimes will be made fun of for being depressed or right, being told right. that they're just seeking attention. Shame, the amount of shame that gets internalized for not being perfect, for not being... Fitting the standard. Not fitting a very, very high standard it serves two purposes. One is to mold the behavior of the person that's being shamed but it also shows everyone around that person that this is what happens when yeah. you don't fit in. And so all of you need to follow this standard, right? And again, this isn't necessarily unique to Darianne, but that's very much what, what was being described by uh, two of these women. And think about having to live up to that day in and day out. Wait, and that is- coupled with... Keep going, keep going, sorry. So uh, again, we can't we can't just say like, this is the one thing that has gotten us to the point that we're at. It's a multitude of things. It's that kind of pressure. The, the, the fear that we're going to disappoint everyone around us because we're not perfect. Plus feeling rejected in some way by our peers, by our family, feeling like we're not worthwhile or feeling like I don't understand why I'm feeling this way. All of those things together is the perfect storm. It's not a single thing. It's all of those things together. So I'm, I'm, I'm jump on that. This you said this is not unique to Darian. I mean, but, but this is not unique to children. I mean, this is goes on with. I'm sure this goes on with all of you guys in our adult worlds. And you, as an adult, I guess maybe have the tools or whatever, or or the I don't give a hoot to blow it off. You, you, you I mean, maybe you found. I, I, I'm trying to think where I want to go with this. I mean, this is what I guess what we go through as adults. And I so I guess what I'm going to put back at you is. Is it unique that our kids would be going through this? Because, you know, is it just that they, they're going through it earlier than we are? Like, I mean, this is a good setup for life practice about like understanding yourself, having to convert the courage, and the conviction to like understand yourself, stand up for yourself. Like, should these kids not be getting this less? I mean, like, I don't know where, I do think you know what I'm saying? that's where it changes with social media. I mean, you think back to, I, I don't, I don't think some of these practices are different than when we were growing yeah, up. Yeah, okay, okay. But there's not that, as Taylor, you were mentioning, the immediacy of it. Like, think about when you would take pictures if you were at a sleepover, you had a party, and you had a little camera, and then someone had to, had to take, take yeah. it, send it out oh in the mail, and yes. half of them came back blurry, or like, you know. And that was it. There was one copy of that image, right? Yeah. You know, you could make a mistake, and yes, 
The stakes are so much higher. Yeah, but now everything is there forever. It's public. It can be shared. And you've got these developing brains that are trying to figure out who they are. It's developing brains that are dealing with it versus like, a developed brain as an adult. Well, you're sa- that- what I heard you say, if I'm hearing correctly, is it's still hard with the developed brain, with the cognitive right. wherewithal, with the lived experience of all these years of saying, yeah. "All right, this will be a, you know in everyone's brain for two weeks, and then they'll right. forget about it." But couldn't you, but you train don't get brain that if it's developing brain though? If it's developing, isn't that a good time to maybe train it? Like you know, if if maybe I had been the taught these skills, brain that prefrontal cortex doesn't fully mature until you're 25. Okay, this is what I'm asking. raging it is so many things going on with it it is growing it is trying to figure out how to organize things stay on top of things manage the influx of hormones and emotions and all of that self-regulation piece right like it's a hot mess yeah okay so what can we do to help so before we we get to that there's something about you know we can talk about developing versus developed brains but we also have the benefit of experience that I don't know out of the four of us I don't know how many of us maybe were the ones that were eating lunch in the bathroom right and that in that moment that feels like the most horrible day and moment of your life right we're older now we know that at that at some point that passes that high school is not the end-all be-all that the ways in which maybe you don't fit in when you, you know, if you go to college, when you go to college, you find your people, mm-hmm. that you are able to find your community, you're able to be who you want to be. And if you want to be the person that wears the neon green pants, you find other people that love the neon green pants. But when you're in a small community where everything is about trying to sort of fit that mold, that feels like you are never going to get out of it. Well, that's what they say, right? right? Yeah. That's one of the, that's the third interview the young, the freshman said. Like this is, it annoyed her, Georgette. Not annoyed, she said one of the things her parents would say to her, I, I think, I don't want to misquote this, but I think I thought something I heard where it was, her parents would kind of explain to her like, you know, it, it's this is just high school. It's just a period of time. And, and that was upsetting to her because her response or her feeling in that moment, I mean, she might have actually said this offline afterwards. It was, but even though I know you think that mom and dad, this is my life and this yes. moment is everything to me. So they don't, so, yeah, how, so what do you I'm say not, to So them? I'm not saying that we should tell them oh, okay. it's just high school. Okay. I'm saying that we have the benefit of experience of us knowing when we have a bad day or when something like maybe similar is happening at work, like, you know, this ebbs and flows, these feelings, yes. this too shall pass. When you're in the middle of it and you haven't had years of experience this this feels like that this will never end right and so to hear this is just whatever feels very invalidating right mm-hmm. but and so so even without having a sort of a, a developed brain i think part of it is just we know that it passes because we've been around longer but there's no way of necessarily transmitting that to I them. I think we all wish we had a thumb drive. We could sort of pull out of our own head and like plug it in so that they could have that perspective <laughs> and that, that experience. I mean, I know I, I've thought that several times. And if we could somehow help them. I mean, it's kind of what I was hoping to get at in the second interview when I'm like, if you you know, if you can't buck this trend, like who can? Like someone's got to stand up to this and say, this is ridiculous. You mean in, your, in our second interview? Our second the interview. Second, yeah. yeah, about like you can't post a picture second wearing the same outfit. You know, like... You know, she definitely knew that was not right. Um, 
and I mean, God, every she has everything going for her. And I'm like, God, I wish you guys had the perspective and the and the maturity to stand up and say, This isn't right and you know But that's so hard. Again, that's it. why I was talking about shame, is that shame yeah, is such a great exactly. teacher of behavior in the sense that she could be the one to say, That's ridiculous. I'm not gonna do this. But then she becomes the target. Exactly. Well, that's what happened, I think, with the third that their third girl was saying reduce and she and and the shame she lost her friend group. I mean, I mean, I think it was more extensive than that. But like, the repercussions were. So, but back to the practical like takeaways. What do we tell these kids? How do we help them as parents? That's like the million <laughs> Ready, dollar. Yeah, 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 right? I know. I'm like so many layers there. Um, well, you know, let me give one tangible thing for parents. Like um, when we started this off, Georgia, you had said like you know when some parents, you said it very eloquently that. You can't imagine something, your your kid being in such a place that the that all they can think about is is ending their life as a solution. I, I'm still thinking about when you said that to open this up. I mean that <clears throat> that's killer to hear. Um, so it, it made me think about as I did research for this. I talked to many parents. I talked to many therapists, and one of the big takeaways was um, every therapist was booked, and a lot of parents didn't know where to go for help. And so I almost want to, as we talk about what we can do for parents, what do you tell a parent who is looking at their child and is like, this kid needs help? Or a parent is at the end of their rope and they've called everyone and no one's available. What, what do they do? Like, or, you know, like in, that, in those moments, if there's no one available, I mean, uh, Tara? I don't know. I, I end up getting those calls a lot. Um, my practice is fully subscribed at the moment, so I don't have space to take on new clients, but I often end up having those phone calls with parents. And so I will kind of give, walk them through things just on the phone about, okay, so here are some first steps that you need to do and give them some real practical strategies, kind of what we've already talked about, setting up the dialogue, listening to them, helping them understand like if they've got a child who is at a risk of self-harm or has suicidal ideations, you know, what are their options? You know, um, it's amazing that our adolescents now already know about the suicide hotline, that they know that you can access 211. Um, sometimes there's a lot of just even free talk therapy spaces that you can do some one-off crisis calls on if you're just in a moment where you need somebody beyond, you know, what is available in your household. Um, there's, it's kind of a segue, but it was what you were saying too, is um, the young man who spoke to, he had a therapist and he said the guy was great, but he didn't feel comfortable going too. There are a lot of young adults who don't, who aren't ready to talk. It's not that they don't want to talk, that they're just not ready or feel comfortable in that relationship. So sometimes like finding that person that resonates with you, that you connect with is more than just getting into a therapist that's open. It's finding that person that you feel safe right. speaking to. So I think in that conversation, there's so many different layers. It's finding the availability. It's knowing what the underlying issues are. It is finding the is wonderful about this community is that even though trying to get into a clinician right now is really hard, and I think that is that extra layer we talked about where things are enmeshed or you layered on top of each other, because of the pandemic, what at least I'm seeing, and Georgette, you work, you work for a larger organization, so you can probably speak to this too, is there are 
a lot more calls coming in. So before there was already a mental health crisis going on, and I think sometimes we forget that that was there. We weren't talking as loudly and as boldly about what was happening, but we're silly to think that, that, that we weren't already dealing with this. We knew this in our world, but I think everyone else wasn't seeing it as clearly as we were seeing it. And then with the pandemic, what happened is because everybody is under so many so much stress, even those that we talked about, like had some of those tools, could figure some of these things out, they, they could kind of use some of the to- coping skills they had, they don't even have the skills. So now we've got multiple layers. We've got kids who normally would be pretty healthy kids who are struggling with some adjustment issues, who are struggling with grief, who are struggling with anxiety and pressure. And then we have other kids who may have already been predisposed to having more significant mental health concerns who are in crisis. And this past year, I don't know if you saw it too, even access to higher level care, whether we're talking about hospital treatment, the emergency rooms, separate story. our, our IOPs, which is a partial program where you might go in the afternoons and get more intensive daily support, and even the residential programs, getting access. Families were on wait lists to be able to get that support. So when you know you're at that level and you can't even access it, that's a really scary space to be. Yeah, I think some of that is starting to back off. I'm hearing that the wait lists aren't so bad for those programs. I don't know what you're hearing. But this spring, I think we were at an all-time high with getting access to support. So you have all these different pieces. But what this community did do and what this community does have is they have a variety of different channels. So, you know, the town itself and in Georgette, I think you were part of this with them as well, created a mental health task force and a list of resources of anyone available in the community that had space available. We also have, and I heard several of your students talking about it, clergy members that opened up and made themselves available on the spot right. to be able to reach out. And that didn't necessarily have, it was, it was made available for all kids. So even if you weren't the kid that was struggling the most, you could come in too and talk about what you were experiencing. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I think there are a lot of different channels. I also think, you know, having had two kids that have gone through the high school, there are a lot of amazing educators within that building who really connect with the kids and and also kind of serve as mentors and voices too sometimes and just listening to the kids. So I think there are a lot of different channels to be able to access support. It is really unfortunate that accessing a mental health provider right now is is as challenging as it is and there was actually very timely there was a op-ed in the new york times on the ninth about why is it so hard to find a provide a child health provider right now and it went through all you're shaking your head Mm -hmm. taylor did you see that no 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 no, i've just heard it Yeah. yeah um so they were talking about all those reasons they talked about the fact that it is much easier to treat adults than children. They talked about the time constraints, you know, for mental health professionals. Kids are only available after school and kids have such structured schedules and all sorts of activities. Even getting into a provider, like I'll talk to to families who want to come in and I'll say, well, I have a, a villain. You have to make that choice. Do we give up something else that 
brings joy to my child's life in order to get help from this. That's a that's hard a crazy decision. decision to make, right? Because that's what that one boy was even saying. Like he plays, soccer. You know, he loves soccer. And it was like, it, but his parents wanted him to do homework, you know, the, the, you know, yeah. like, go to the therapist his, during right. soccer practice. Like, yeah. and how do you say that? Right? Yeah. Like, oh, sorry, I'm going to miss practice I today. I got an appointment, right? You can't like, you can't have a voice to that. Um, also, the training for adults is, you know, it's much easier to see an adult children require a lot of collateral care by that I say a good therapist working with a child or adolescent is in touch with the family they're in touch with the school they're in touch with all the touch points of beyond the child, just the therapy beyond a 45 minute ser- therapy session right. so it just it, it there there were a lot of really um, pragmatic layers as to why it is much harder to find therapists that are child focused right now well, I think it's very easy too with all that we've been through to as a parent see you know, see smoke, think there's fire and say, okay, we've got to call the experts. Yeah. What percentage of patients out there, adolescents out there, do you think really need a trained therapist versus like how many parents have the skills they need to help their child? Like, I mean, obviously we all have some skills that we, you know, can truly help with, but you know, should parents be giving themselves the benefit of the doubt and saying, like, you know what, I think I, I think I can give this a shot, or is that dangerous? Like, what would you say? I don't, I don't. I mean, you can speak, but I, you know, nerdy voice here. Um, Eli Leibowitz, who is up at Yale, runs something called the Space Program, which is it's supportive parenting for emotionally anxious um, children. Um, it is a, a, um, a research-based program that works with those kids who aren't really available for therapy themselves. And I think in a lot of ways, just maybe through a different channel, very similar to the work you do, Georgette, in the sense of instead of working with the child, they give the parent the tools to to work with the child to manage the issues at hand. I think the parents, in a lot of cases, are the best interface. If you go to therapy, And I say this to a lot of parents, you come in once a week, 45 minutes. We can do a lot of great work in 45 minutes in a session, but most kids and adolescents aren't aren't available yet to take those skills you've worked on and generalize it to different settings, right? They're not going to be able to say, hey, that's exactly what Dr. Tara and I were talking about. I need to bring that tool out and use it in this. No, or coach their child know what to say, know how to support them, know how to listen and communicate with them, they're available all around the clock to be able to do that. They're able to do it in the moment when the child is not feeling regulated. So is it easier for parents to get access to that training than it is to get your kid in to see a therapist? <laughs> I think some, sometimes... That's a crazy question, well, but it's different not. bottleneck. George, I, it, I think... There's more time. Parents might have more availability of time. And that is, you know, the one thing that telehealth has has made easier is, or not telehealth, the pandemic is, I never did tell, or tell, I didn't do nearly as many telehealth sessions prior to the pandemic. Now, I do it a lot more often, not so much with the kids, but the parents. And it allows other caregivers to get involved. A lot of times, you know, parents who were working that weren't in the community weren't able to join for the sessions. Now I have people that are both parents are showing up to meetings, you know, maybe through Zoom or something like that. And both of them are getting the skills. Both of them are getting the language. So that's like, you know, that's a little bit of a silver lining that I think is really helpful. So if you're a parent looking to try and help your child, 
and you think you're going to try and do it on your own. When you call, let's say you are looking for support in that process and you're calling a therapist for the first time, what do you say? Like, hey, I need some coaching on how to help my kid. Is it as straightforward as that? Are you asking for something in particular? Is it? I think it depends on what your child is struggling with and um, what you've tried so far. So I think that for a lot of sort of less severe anxiety, depression, and sort of general sort of parent-child relationship issues, you can absolutely call a therapist and say, I'm struggling with my child. I really, I want to be able to talk to someone so we can think through this together. Because here's the other thing. I, I might be able to give you 10 strategies, or you could go to, well, I'm going to date myself, Barnes & Noble. Is that even around anymore? Yeah. Um, and, and get yourself like a workbook right? And you go through the steps. Maybe 50% of the chance are going to work. It's not, it's not about that. It's about someone that you can be with in the room and think through what is happening. How did we get to the place where we are and what's going to work for my family? Because what works for one family is not going to work for another. What works for one parent is not going to work for another because if you're, if a parent is trying to use a strategy that feels so foreign and uh, artificial to them, the child's going to pick up on it. It's it's really about having someone to bounce ideas off or anything styled. If a child is very depressed, then I think really sometimes as a parent, being sort of the, the bigger person, the bigger, wiser, kinder person in the room is saying, I understand maybe this isn't something that you want to do, but my job is to keep you safe. And at this point, we, all of us, not just you, we, we need more help so that we can get you to a better place. And what do you do, by the way? So that question to you that I asked that, uh, you know, Tara answered beautifully, um, you know, if a parent doesn't have a resource, they go, you, have, you come at this from a different angle than Tara because she's got a private practice. You have a different, um, you have a clinic. So what would you tell parents? And- so I always tell them, if you have a child in crisis, if you have any question about you know your child's safety, call two one one. Okay. You can call two one one twenty four seven, and you will be connected to someone who will take your information, and they will be you will be connected to a mobile crisis clinician, someone who, if you would like, can come to your home within forty five minutes to assess your child and make sure that they are safe with the goal of really giving them those specific coping strategies and and keeping them safe in the community. Because the goal is to keep the kids out of the emergency rooms that are not equipped to be able to deal with child psychiatric issues, especially now during the pandemic. If you ask Stanford Hospital, Norwalk Hospital, the number of um, admissions for psychiatric reasons for children has skyrocketed and they are not equipped to deal with it. They're not gonna get care there. They're gonna be kept safe there maybe, but they will not get care. And then they will get discharged with no follow-up plan. So call 211. If you're, even if you just wanna talk to a clinician and say, hey, I'm worried about this, should I be worried about this? Call 211. Don't, it, it's better to err on the side of caution. And That's it- the one thing. The, the other thing that I often do when, for example, um, my patients are aging out of our clinic because, you know, once they reach 19, they have, uh, I need to refer them out. I love using uh, resources to recover. Um, that, it's the website out of Laurel House. 
and they have a whole list of vetted providers, family-endorsed providers, and they will help connect you with someone. I know Silver Hill is also doing an urgent um, assessment program that um, I think at this point is only open to New Canaan. There, there was some conversations about potentially opening it up to Darien. I'm not sure where they're at. But that was also the goal, is having not someone necessarily or a child who was in an immediate crisis because they would tell you to call 211, but if within 48 hours they could be assessed by someone and, can, and they will essentially hold your hand until you are connected to someone because of that same issue, because that I- the issue of not being able to find a therapist with availability is something that has been... I mean, Tara and I know that, again, the mental health crisis was happening years before the pandemic. Mm-hmm. It's just now become really evident. Before the pandemic, suicide was the second leading cause of death in people under 25. Wow. That before was Before the pandemic. Yeah. Before the pandemic. It was the second leading cause of death. Do you is know there, where, yeah, theory as to why? I mean, is that normal? Has it always been the case? Or was that a spike? And, no, yeah. I mean, it's, it's something that's been going on for decades. Yeah. Okay. And you said that the number of admissions to emergency rooms for, you know, children with mental, I don't know how you put it, but has that come down? No, it's gone up. Yeah. Still, since yeah. the pandemic. Mm-hmm. Okay. So we're sitting here with yeah. Georgette Harrison and Tara Levinson. Two therapist. Uh, this conversation is um, oh, a little mind blowing. It's heavy, but it's 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 it's. I, f- I feel some hope talking to you guys. It's, it kind of is breaking it down, as you said, uh, Tara earlier. Like having some tools here. Process not the whole mountain, but taking it maybe at base camp. That was a that was a great um, metaphor there. Um, I also think it's worth noting. I know. Georgette, you've been part of this, but you know, in actually, you too. I think Tara, like the mental task force the Darian's the mental group? health task force. mental health task force I'm not on the mental oh you're not okay. I'm part of thriving youth so task Georgia force. You're, you're part of that and you know Darian you know I don't want to put war, make sure I <laughs> represent this probably but Darian after the incidents last spring Darian created a mental health task force dedicated to providing resources right putting up a we have a um, human services services department within Darian government but then they 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 beefed up the mental health services part of that to provide a number of resources of people who are in the community or in the area, right, that can help, that you can reach out to possibly. Is that correct? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yes. And also, um, I think Tara mentioned this earlier, on their website, you can find an updated list of people. I mean, I know Allie is calling people. Allie Ramstek is calling people constantly trying to find out. The the website is dariancct.gov. So you Department can, Human Services, right? Mm-hmm. And you can find a list of providers who have openings at this time. So that's one of the, the things that the, they've been doing. They've also created, um, you know, it, they, they've really put a lot of thought into what are the, the this is a very resource-rich community, and at the same time, we also need to, um, we needed a group of people to be able to think together about how do we support without being reactive. Right? I like that, yeah. Right. So that's what the mental health task force was all about? Mm-hmm. Okay. And I think one of the biggest points that came out of that, and there was a discussion at a meeting um, the other day, was that the first six months after loss by suicide, people are grieving, and everyone grieves in a different way. So what you experience might look very different than what I experience. and 
how I go through that experience. So a lot of a lot of the recommendations are to give it some time, like mm-hmm. six months, before we really evaluate what does a community need. Because in the beginning, we really just need to respond to people's immediate feelings, right? And provide support and care before we decide to tackle what is it that we need to do moving forward. Mm-hmm. Which I thought was actually quite thoughtful. Yeah. Yeah, it is nice. Um, we've gone on so long, and I'm sorry, we should wrap this up. I know for parents. Uh, um, but tell me one other thing. I, I hear a lot of parents asking in general about testing and, you know, when to do testing, if to do testing, what testing. Can, and you mentioned this at the beginning as one of your credentials. Can you give us, without like throwing us into the weeds of testing, like if a parent should consider, is considering this, is it necessary? Um, I think it's a great question. It does come up a lot. Um, It is something that's in my wheelhouse. I think there's two different areas you look at. If we're talking about mental health sort of diagnoses, if um, sometimes what what you need. So, I mean, this is language that parents don't always have, right? Like this is Taylor, like you were saying. Like, how are we supposed to know all these things? So, um, depending on your licensing as a therapist, sometimes you're allowed to make diagnoses. And sometimes you're not a diagnostician. So sometimes it it is helpful to go see either a psychiatrist or a psychologist that can do some mental health testing to really figure out what the diagnoses underlance to a trauma or a specific acute situation where stress arises and you're seeing anxiety and maybe some depression. Sometimes there are actually underlying that some really clinical issues that really need to be understood at a deeper level so you make sure the treatment is correct and so that goes one direction i think a lot of times some of the testing that you're talking about actually taps into kind of developmental learning and kind of some of those you know regulation issues too and that's a much more extensive process and you know when families are exploring that hopefully it is in a holistic way to really gain a sense of who is my child and if my child is struggling for some reason, can we get an understanding of not what are we seeing, but why are we seeing what we're seeing? Because we can't put interventions in place if we don't understand where it's coming from. So yeah, we can say, hey, we see this, this, and this, and that's great. So it's kind of putting a Band-Aid on things, right? Like, well, we'll do those things. But if we don't understand the why of what we're seeing, we're really not going to make a long-term impact. So that's where, and I think as a family, if you have those kinds of questions for yourself, why it becomes important to maybe explore some of, of the more... Look, no. Taylor looked almost more confused. <laughs> no, 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 no. No, it was good. Thank you. Okay. All right. Taylor, you do such a good job wrapping it up. I, I can't I can't possibly <laughs> be the one to finally do that. <laughs> oh, thank you. I mean, you guys were amazing. Thank you. I mean, it was heartbreaking to listen to some of these stories. And thank you for coming in and helping us kind of work through some of that and hopefully offering parents, um, you know, some practical takeaways and how they can help their own kids. And, you know, we, yep. uh, we hope to be making some positive change here. Yeah. And, you know, as part of that, you guys talk about uh, coping skills, tools. Um, you got this, you know, giving yourself grace. We are, um, our next episode is we are bringing in some local clergy to kind of talk about faith's role in this and as a possible tool. Um, because we heard that is a common theme with two of the kids that came in. So we, um, we're interested to explore what that looks like in our community. 
can I just put one yeah. last note Please, in? Please, Tara. end it on a, on a more positive note. Please, and we're, positive. Yes. I know we're in a space right now where sometimes it is hard to see the positives, like everyone is struggling. I truly believe, I've done a lot of research in the world of resiliency. I do think this generation of kids down the road, and we might not see that for 5, 10, 15 years, is actually going to be re- very resilient. Because you know what? They've faced tough things. Yes. And even though they've had to sit in the discomfort of all of this really hard stuff, they've gotten through it. And because of that, when they get older, when then they become adults and they're faced with a challenge, they're going to have the perspective that even when things feel really bad, I don't know how we can keep moving forward. I can move forward. So I absolutely think that when we look back at where our kids are when they become young adults and, and adults, that we're going to see a really resourceful group of individuals. And I, I truly believe that, that as a clinician. Yeah. So I like that is hopeful. I like that, that <laughs> outlook. I also, I don't know if I'm putting words in your mouth, but I hope that it would be accurate to say, you know, as parents trying to give people hope because it is so scary, right? Like you, you hit the nail on the head earlier, Georgette. Um, you know your kid better than anybody else, right? And trust your gut, trust your instinct. Trust your gut, trust your instinct. And again, I think that um, sometimes fear can make us do some really strange things as parents, right? Because we have the best intentions in our heart and we just want to keep our kids safe. Um, and, and it would not be out of the ordinary to you know, listen to this podcast and think, not my kid, right? Um, or to think about, okay, my kid is kind of struggling, but I, I, I don't want to ask the question. I think that the same way that we're going to see some really resilient kids, I think as parents, we have shown a tremendous amount of resilience. Even if you think about what we had to do in the middle of the pandemic between like working from home, schooling from home and being like cruise director, chef, uh, (laughs) teacher, school nurse, guidance counselor, like we figured it out and, and, and we're like starting to come out on the other side of it. And like, we, we've got this, but don't let fear and anxiety of what your kid might say, if you were to ask, you know, why they're struggling and if they're, you know, and how you can help. Don't let that fear make you turn away and not ask the question. Because you can, you can do it. Like, they want you to ask. They, you, they want you to be the one to ask that question. And you, you are strong enough to deal with whatever comes out of their mouth. Cause, and, and you're not alone, too, right? You've got a community as yes. well. Awesome takeaway. Thank you. This was phenomenal. Thank you both so much. And uh, we look forward to, I don't know, the third time, Georgia. We'll get you back and talk about something else. Thank you both, ladies. Thank Thank you. Thank you.